We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical bill expert, finding savings can seem impossible. Well, HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. So start saving with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. Dr. Phillips looked down at Alice's corpse. The cries that Jack the Ripper was back to bloodletting were ringing in his ears. It was the summer of 1889, and Dr. Phillips had a job to do. He had to clear his head. He had to examine the evidence, the evil marks left on Alice McKenzie's body. And he had to determine, like before, who might have guided the vicious blade that killed her. The first thing he noticed was how shallow the cuts were. In fact, Dr. Phillips said in his report that, After careful and long deliberation, I cannot satisfy myself that the perpetrator of all the Whitechapel murders is our man. The mode and procedure of the cutting seemed to be different. He had witnessed the terrible brutality visited on East End women in the fall before. No one who had seen Mary Kelly's body would miss the difference. Or so thought Dr. Phillips. But just to keep things interesting, Scotland Yard once again requested that Dr. Thomas Bond come in to confirm the judgment. But what he said started an argument that has never quite finished. By the time Dr. Bond arrived, Alice McKenzie's body had started to decompose, and it had been washed and handled since the first examination. Even so, Dr. Bond said with confidence that the cuts across her body he saw the design of the Whitechapel murders, and he stated plainly for the police the murder was performed by the same person. As usual, Dr. Bond convinced his friends at Scotland Yard, or at least some of them. James Monroe wrote to the Home Secretary that he had received word the very moment Alice's body was found. At 3 a.m., he had rushed to the scene of Alice's murder and immediately taken personal control of the investigation. As the evidence was gathered, including Dr. Bond's statement, James Monroe was convinced that the murder was identical with the notorious Jack the Ripper of last year. Along with his report to the Home Secretary Matthews, the new police commissioner sent on a map. On it, he marked the places where Whitechapel murders had taken place. But here's where the next argument lies. Because yes, that map showed the murders that Dr. Bond had considered back in October. Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Liz Stride, 
Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Kelly. That's five. But the map had eight murders marked. It included two women killed earlier in 1888, Emma Smith and Martha Tabram, along with a new case of the murder of Alice McKenzie. It seems the police under James Monroe's direction were still considering whether all of these women were killed by the same man. His map, though, completely left out the torso murders. And in the following days, it seems that Monroe's mind changed. When it came to imagining the Whitechapel killer, the legendary Jack the Ripper behind the death of Alice McKenzie, Monroe's conclusions swung from agreeing with Dr. Bond to agreeing with Dr. Phillips. At least that's what Monroe told the head of Scotland Yard. It was a flip-flopping attitude that would follow every East End murder investigation for a long, long time. Whenever a new body turned up, the question had to be asked, was this the work of Jack the Ripper? In a year that followed the 1888 Autumn of Terror, everyone responsible for governing life and death in Whitechapel was caught in a fog of uncertainty. At Alice Mackenzie's inquest, Wynne Baxter intoned for the Times of London that there is great similarity between this and the other class of cases which have happened in this neighborhood. And if this crime has not been committed by the same person, it is clearly an imitation of the other cases. There is nothing to show why, he said. The woman is murdered, or by whom? This is Unobscured. I'm Aaron Mankey. Who was responsible? It was the question now set before every mind that wanted to solve the Whitechapel murders and unmask the killer. How many of the women killed in the East End were the victims of a single brutal murderer? And did either approach truly lead to the identity of the murderer? It was the question that faced the police too, and men like Melville McNaughton. It's true that McNaughton was not yet on the force during the fall of 1888, but the new Metropolitan Police Commissioner, his friend James Monroe, wrote, I always had a high opinion of his qualifications and abilities, but he has shown an aptitude for dealing with criminal administration and a power of managing and dealing with men. It was a recommendation that sounds close to the kinds of compliments given to Donald Swanson for his synthetical turn of mind. So maybe we can't be surprised that McNaughton would turn his powers of analysis to the Whitechapel murders. After all, how many thousands of us have done the same? But McNaughton's hindsight was more informed than most. And what he wrote had the benefit of coming from inside Scotland Yard. Here's Dr. Drew Gray to tell us about the mark that McNaughton left on the investigation. In February 1894, he he wrote a report on the case. And that was prompted by speculation in the Sun newspaper of the day that the murderer was a man named Thomas Cutbush. And he was kind of refuting that, I think. In McNaughton's writing, we see the way that a serious police investigator was still devoting time to the hunt for the Whitechapel murder, even long after the cases went cold. Let's have Adam Wood tell us how he sorted through that evidence. What I find interesting about the McNaughton report is that he names the same five victims as the genuine Ripper victims as Thomas Bond did his report. And this is where we get the so-called canonical five victims from Marianne Nichols through to Mary Kelly and the victims before these five and afterwards are genuinely regarded as 
probably not by the Ripper, but that's certainly changing, certainly in the case of Marfa Tabram. But McNaughton had a reason for describing which victims he thought were truly killed by the Ripper, and that was to identify a suspect. But just one suspect wasn't good enough for McNaughton. In fact, he named three. Here's more from Dr. Drew Gray. The report itself is quite short, and in it, McNaughton names three possible Ripper suspects, so three people that were supposedly known to the police and part of the investigation at the time. And these were Montague John Druitt, Michael Ostrog, and a guy just known as Kosminski, not given a first name, but generally has been given the name Aaron Kosminski. But Kosminski, a Polish Jew, is how McNaughton writes it. And when we look at McNaughton's trio of suspects, my problem is that they broadly fit the typology of who the Victorians thought ought to have been the killer, i.e. someone who was considered to be a social other. So we have a, an upper-class gentleman, we have a psychotic doctor, and we have a deranged Jewish immigrant. They're all the people who are Druitt, Ostrog and Kosminski. And I think it's rather convenient that McNaughton identifies those three as the people that the police were looking for, because those are the sort of people the press were telling the police they ought to be looking for. Not only was Melville McNaughton's report a simple product of the way Victorians saw the world, it was also a strange document for the very fact that it named multiple suspects. It tells us that even as the years passed, the police around Whitechapel had not been able to narrow down their list of men who might have committed the crimes. Some officers believed one of the men might be responsible, others in their ranks could only come to a different conclusion. The fact is, even in examining McNaughton's report, we don't know much about who else in the Metropolitan Police agreed with his opinions. McNaughton submitted his report up the line. It was marked confidential and put into the police files. But during his lifetime, it was never published. Victorian London was often a killer, and its disasters and diseases led to many more deaths than any one person— But the thrill and terror of murder has a hold on our mind that far outweighs the mere numbers. The stories of neglect and the awful ordinariness of fatal outbreaks are easy to overlook when there are newspapers like The Star whipping up a fearful frenzy about the danger that our neighbors pose. They're not unrelated, though. And to understand the ways that a government and a police force fail to hunt down a serial killer, we need to understand the world in which those failures take place. Here's more from Paul Begg. Jack the Ripper is a mystery. And understanding, perhaps even solving it, you have to study the evidence. You have to know how people lived and so on, because all of how they lived could have a bearing on what they did and therefore ultimately lead to perhaps a discovery of who the murderer was or getting close to that. You have to read books, which is no bad thing, but you've got to learn about sources which ones are and which ones aren't reliable. All the sorts of things that historians do that's part of their job. And many of those things have applications in our world, such as now there is an increasing need to distinguish between trustworthy and untrustworthy news stories and blogs and web pages and goodness knows what else. The Whitechapel murders demanded the attention of London during their own day. And it's never stopped bringing more eyes and more minds to the mystery of a case. So often the focus has been on the gaps in our knowledge, the things we don't know or never can. But when it comes down to it, there's so much that we do know. 
and the obsessive drive to uncover the identity of the killer has often allowed the speculations and fabrications of times past to cover over the real lives and real past of the place where the killings happened. Even in 1888, though, Whitechapel was much bigger than just the story of its infamous killer. Darkest England That was the smear used against London's East End to accuse it of being just like so-called uncivilized parts of the world. The parts of the world that had just a few too many diamonds in their fields, according to people like Charles Warren. The parts of the world that needed civilizing missions, according to people like James Monroe. The parts of the world that could be put to work if you had some matches to make. But what if you were all three? and you had a missionary army ready to make some matches, that's what the East End looked like to the Salvation Army. The leaders of that movement saw the ways that Bryant and May were making hay from the East End poor, and they saw an opportunity to compete, so they opened a rival match factory in hopes of lifting people out of poverty. And the Darkest England Match Company started right down the road from Bryant and May. To their credit, the entrepreneurial mission left the toxic white phosphorus behind, and they paid their workers twice what Bryant and May offered. For a while, it seemed like they were succeeding, too, and they were putting out six million boxes of matches each year. Members of Parliament and journalists with ready pens came through on tours led by the Salvation Army generals. But as the matchwomen knew all too well, matchmaking was a ruthless business. The Darkest England Match Company only lasted a few years, and when it closed, it was gobbled up by a competitor. That's right. It was taken over by none other than Bryant and May. But that's not the end of the story for working people in London's East End. Because, as you probably remember, when we last left Mary Driscoll and the Matchwomen, they weren't done with their own work. They were still agitating. But in 1889, it went beyond that, too. Here's Dr. Louise Raw to tell us more. I found that strikes shot up, shot up right after the matchman's strike and there's no other way to explain it because i looked i went right back and looked at averages on years everyone in the east end is going on strike the tailors the seamstresses you know the jam factories the purple is everyone's going on strike you know because working people aren't stupid they they see an example here oh look they are workers like us they're supposed to be powerless blimey they're now trade union leaders and they've got better conditions you know how dumb do we think working people are that this would be lost on them of course it wasn't lost on them and one of those groups who looked to what mary driscoll and the other women had achieved was none other than the muscle that made the empire flourish the dock workers they wanted what the match women had won and they decided to make demands of their own after all they could only be envious of what the women in their family had won here's louise raw once again Matchwomen marry dockers. Um, Matchwomen are the mothers of dockers, the sisters of dockers, the friends of dockers. You know, working people do inspire each other. They do talk, of course. Well armed with the matchwomen's example, the poorest dockers, the Irish laborers who were hired for casual work on a daily basis, got together and wrote a letter to the directors of the dock companies. What they wanted was clear a penny raise in their daily wage and something more for overtime. But the dock directors were deaf to their demands. And so, the strike began. First, it was 2,500 men who marched off the West India Dock on August 14th, and they put out a call for all the workers on all the docks along the river to support the poorest men. By August 21st, 20,000 men were marching. But they took their cues from the matchwomen. Their protests and marches weren't dull. They were accompanied by a royal clamor. 
The sounds of brass bands and the rolling rattle of pipes and drums filled the East End streets. Every dock was shut down. Even the police wanted to get in on the union action. After all, other public servants like postmen were also taking steps to unionize. It was a strange turn of events when you think about it. The men who had been beating the socialists with batons in London's Trafalgar Square were coming around to their ideas. At one point, when the strike leaders heard that 500 more police were going to meet their lines, they welcomed them in, and rather than beating the strikers back, the constables joined them. After all, the Home Secretary was refusing the pay raise that Charles Warren and then James Monroe had asked for. The massive strike only gained strength. And this strike is unquestionably a huge event, but it's unsuccessful at first. The dot company really fight back. And John Burns, one of the key leaders who goes on to be an MP, says during the strike to a mass meeting of hundreds of thousands of men, don't give up, stand shoulder to shoulder, remember the match girls who won their fight and formed a union. Well, I mean, wow. And he says that kind of thing constantly, by the way. He doesn't say, oh, some match women, you probably haven't heard of them. They were from Brian to May down the road. They apparently had a strike. He says the match girls, and he knows everyone knows, hundreds of thousands of men listening, they all know damn well who the match women are. That's how inspiring they are. When the leaders wrote their memoirs, they said things like it was the match women that started it. They, they, were the first signs. They were the first encouragement, the first inspiration. They were the start of new unionism. Soon enough, Monroe was in a furious battle with Home Secretary Matthews. The dock owners and the Home Office had wanted the police to beat back the strike. Monroe replied that he believed in impartial policing. His view was that the police were not simply the servants of London's employers or the tools of the city's wealthiest aristocrats. His dispute with Matthews would never resolve, but the strike would come to an end. By November, the dock directors had given in, and the longshoremen were drawing their new, higher wages. And that wasn't the only effect. Echoes of the dock workers' shouts were heard elsewhere in Britain and around the world, from the Liverpool dockers' strike the next year to the men unloading freight in the ports of Australia. And it wasn't just rising workers in other lands who heard John Byrne's rallying cry to remember the match girls. The East End remembered it too. The descendants that I talked to were really good at explaining how these notions, these received notions that were forced on them from above were rejected and were turned around. And he said, I'm really glad you're writing about my gran and her friends because they were wonderful and nobody thinks they were. And I had to grow up with that. I had to grow up with these incredible powerhouse women, strong characters, brave, amazing, you know, did the impossible on a daily basis, fed, huge families and people treated them like dirt and people would say they weren't ladies but to us they were they were east end ladies a bigger lesson i think would be hard to find the tables had turned now it was not james monroe celebrating mcnaughton but the other way around instead mcnaughton was celebrating the man who got him into the police You see, James Monroe had lost his job. That might seem to be a strange time to celebrate someone, but think about it. When else would someone need more of a pick-me-up? So the date was set for a dinner party that brought together the usual suspects. Donald Swanson was there. So was Frederick Aberline. James Monroe was the guest of honor, surrounded by eight other officers from the top of Scotland Yard. And Melville McNaughton hosted them all. 
Monroe was done with policing for now. Like Charles Warren, James Monroe had resigned. The struggle to administer the police under a controlling home office was more than he could take, especially when all the forces that wanted to use the police to literally beat the London poor into their place were winning the argument. When he left his post, James Monroe had served as Metropolitan Police Commissioner for the shortest time on record. But what does a police commissioner do when he leaves his position of enormous power in the world's largest city? He sets his sights on the place where he has learned his craft, and he decided to go back to India. He would be welcome, he said, as a medical missionary. And Monroe wasn't the only officer to turn his mind back to the horizon of the empire. Charles Warren, too, returned to something familiar, the British Army. But for Warren, it didn't mean a return to his former glory. Far from it. Instead, it took him to an even worse mess than his failure to capture the Whitechapel killer. Here's Paul Begg to tell us more. Warren, unfortunately, after he resigned, he was sent out to fight abroad. There was a battle at, at a place called Spion Cop, and it was an absolute disaster. And that's basically stuck with Warren uh, and has damaged his reputation for the rest of his life and right down to today. And Drew Gray agrees. 11 years after the Ripper case, serving in the South African War, what's sometimes known as the Boer War, and he has to lead the assault on Spy and Cop, which is an unmitigated military disaster. And I think it's interesting that Paul Begg describes him as a man to whom fate certainly dealt two cruel hands. Leadership of the police during the Ripper case, which is probably impossible for them to solve, and leadership of soldiers at the Battle of Spy and Cop, where they were rudely defeated by the Boers. In fact, at Spion Cop, the troops under Warren's command were absolutely massacred. His lines were ripped apart by Boer artillery that his own officers couldn't locate on the battlefield. In fact, that's his own small contribution to history, an early use of what came to be known as indirect artillery fire. Warren saw his men torn apart, but he couldn't see where the attack was coming from, so he didn't know how to respond. It was a cruel irony that wasn't the first time an unidentified attacker worked devastation before his eyes. The battle was such a disaster that Warren was even called arguably the most incompetent commander of the whole Second Boer War. And those criticisms bit deep. For a man who had dedicated himself to advancing Britain's imperial power, he couldn't stand to have failed so spectacularly again. In 1888, Warren had attempted to refute the criticism of the Metropolitan Police by publishing his ill-fated article in Murray's magazine. After costing thousands of British lives at Spion Cop, he answered his critics in a book he entitled Sir Charles Warren and Spion Cop, A Vindication. He changed his approach this time, though. He published this self-congratulatory rant under a false name. He made sure to quote the best things the Home Secretary ever said about him, that Charles Warren was a man not only of the highest character, but of great ability. Looking back, it might have been more convincing if it was someone else reminding the reading public that this had ever been said about Charles Warren. Donald Swanson also found his later reputation tied up with the violence and the excesses of the British Empire in South Africa, although his role was something like the opposite of Warren. In fact, Swanson had done everything he could to avoid the conflict that later led to Warren's disgrace. Take, for instance, his role in prosecuting what became known as the Jameson Raid. Here's Adam Wood to fill us in. Basically, in 1895, Diamond Magnet and British nationalist Cecil Rhodes, who had been basically annexing large areas of 
South Africa, had his eye on the South African Republic, which was a large independent country, formerly known as the Transvaal. Large quantities of gold had been discovered, which caused thousands of mainly British immigrants called outlanders, who were tolerated thanks to the taxes they had to pay on any gold that they uncovered. But Rhodes was envious and wanted this land, and he devised a plan whereby arms and money would be provided to the outlanders in order to provoke an armed uprising by these settlers with the result of the overthrowing of the South African Republic government. And an armed force of around 700 men under control of Dr Leander Jameson was to be placed on the Transvaal border, ready to assist and support this insurrection. But things went badly wrong because Jameson badly ignored orders to retreat. And the result was that more than 400 of his men were captured. That's where Donald Swanson stepped in. Because once his crowd of men returned to Britain, the question was how they should be handled. What crimes had been committed on the outer reaches of the empire? Could Jameson be charged with smuggling guns through a chartered company and attempting to overthrow the government of a neighboring country? Swanson knew there had to be consequences for such an outrageous provocation. He made sure that those consequences were felt, too. Together with the officers under his command, Donald sorted through the testimonies of all the men involved, and he untangled the conspiracy— When he was done, Swanson had the 13 ringleaders charged with unlawful military expedition against the South African Republic. Seeing the evidence that Swanson collected, the magistrate judging the case said that there cannot be a graver offense than that these men are accused of committing. That might lead to war between two friendly countries. They were convicted and jailed, and for a time it cooled the tensions on the border of the Dutch and British empires. It was the sort of thing that Donald Swanson was capable of, stepping into a snarl of confusing details and wrestling control of the story. He was up against entrenched forces, though. Other storytellers loved what Jameson had done. Men like Rudyard Kipling, the infamous cheerleader of British imperial power, wrote poems in Jameson's honor. Even an investigator as capable as Donald Swanson could only hold back imperial violence for so long. But investigating outrages at the frontier of the empire wasn't Donald Swanson's last contribution to history, because his synthetical mind still had one more insight to give. Swanson's last contribution was marginal, and I mean that literally. It wasn't published. It wasn't even reported to his superior officers. In fact, it was his personal notes scribbled in the margins of a book by Sir Robert Anderson— Swanson's boss at Scotland Yard. Swanson had a habit of writing comments on the margins of whatever he was reading. That included the books by other policemen. Swanson himself decided not to cash in on the hunger for police memoirs, but he made sure to buy the books by his colleagues. And that included Anderson's memoir called The Lighter Side of My Official Life. But just because Donald didn't publish his own perspective, it didn't mean he had nothing to say. Of course, we can't be surprised that even in his retirement, Donald Swanson had strong opinions about police work. So when he picked up Anderson's memoir, it inspired quite a few comments. Today, we might remember Anderson as the man who went on leave in September of 1888 when Polly Nichols and Annie Chapman were killed in Whitechapel. Officers like Swanson and Aberline were left behind at Scotland Yard to coordinate the investigation until Anderson returned. It would have been Donald Swanson who filled in for him and brought him up to speed when he came back. In later years, Anderson would write that when it came to summing up the investigation of the Whitechapel murders, he was tempted to disclose the identity of the murderer, but no public benefit would result. 
In fact, he believed his officers had actually arrested the killer, but they couldn't prosecute him. Why? Because, he wrote, the one person who had ever had a good view of the murderer unhesitatingly identified the suspect the instant he was confronted with him, but he refused to give evidence against him. That passage in Anderson's book inspired a rush of commentary when Swanson read it, but the thoughts he wrote down would not be discovered for decades, not until well after Donald Swanson's death in 1924. Donald's books, filled with his notes, were passed down through the family until 1980, when a relative was sorting through papers and discovered them. Once he had read them, though, he knew that the discovery was significant. Because Swanson hadn't just commented on the margin of that page, he had flipped to the end of the book and written out his thoughts. Here's Adam Wood to say more. Elaborating on the end paper, Swanson wrote, after the suspect had been identified at the seaside home, where he'd been sent by us with difficulty in order to subject him to identification, he knew he was identified. On a suspect's return to his brother's house in Whitechapel, he was watched by police, CTCID, by day and night. In a very short time, the suspect, with his hands tied behind his back, he was sent to Stepney Workhouse and then to Colney Hatch, and he died shortly afterwards. Kosminski was a suspect. Kosminski, one of the three names from Melville McNaughton's unpublished report written in the 1890s. If there's one man then that attracted the most suspicion from the detectives at Scotland Yard, it seems that he was the one. It just leads me to believe that Swanson probably also believed Kosminski to be Jack the Ripper rather than just another suspect. After all, he was the one officer who saw every scrap of evidence and report, and you have to assume that he knew more than anybody. When Swanson's marginal notes came to light, they were put under enormous scrutiny. Was the handwriting genuine? Did Swanson's opinion reveal the true identity of the murderer? If so, who was this Kosminski, let alone the other things mentioned in Swanson's notes, like the seaside home? The comments offered one resolution to the case, but of course, questions remained. Research into the Polish Kosminski family commenced, though traces were scarce. Even for those who believed that the truth had finally been revealed, like Swanson's family, there was still so little to go on. Did believing that Swanson and Anderson had identified the suspect really bring the quest for the Whitechapel murderer to a satisfying conclusion? Here's Paul Begg. What Anderson wrote and how seriously he can be taken depends to a very great extent on what we know about Sir Robert Anderson and what kind of man he was and how things that we know about him may have influenced the way he believed and the things that he said. So we really need to study people like Anderson and McNaughton and Swanson in great depth the trouble is, there's not an awful lot of information out there that enables us to, to do that. The history now is becoming really important. We can't just theorize willy-nilly. We, we really do have to get down to the serious level of history. Serious study, serious scholarship can keep bringing the details and the texture of the past to light. But the painful truth is that it won't ever be possible to fully live in the past. What do we conclude in the absence of evidence? It's the question that plagued Wynne Baxter. It's the question that haunted the police. It's the challenge that has bedeviled historians and writers who have gone back to look at Whitechapel in 1888. And it's even harder when there's so much speculation thrown into the gaps in what we know. 
Even when some of those gaps were filled in by new information, like when the Metropolitan Police files were finally opened in the 1970s, the false leads and the explanations that had been spun up around the case made it more difficult for new information to break through, especially when that new information didn't offer the kinds of revelations that we might hope for. After all, they confirmed at least one thing that we already knew. The police simply didn't know who the killer was. There were fears and suspicions, and there were records of all the arrests and internal reports on police action, but little more. Here's Paul Begg once again. Knowing who Jack the Ripple was largely depends on who the police at the time thought Jack the Ripple was. And the only clues to that that we have are the, is, are the names provided in the McNaughton Memoranda and to a slightly lesser extent to Francis Tumblety and maybe one or two others, but that's basically it. What do we do when there's such a gaping hole in our history? What we're left with is legend, the story. Here's Dr. Drew Gray once more. There's no such person as Jack the Ripper. He, he never existed. Of course, there was a serial killer, or possibly serial killers, at loose in 1888. And that person was responsible for the murder of several very poor and vulnerable women. But the monster that's come down to us as Jack the Ripper is in many ways an invention of popular print culture. And then subsequently a century or more of amateur sleuthing and speculation about the killer. So Jack is a sort of dark fantasy figure that was created in 1888 and has developed ever since. So since we don't know who Jack was, we can continue to offer up suspects that reflect our own fears and our own prejudices, the things that bother us in our own ages. And this process starts right at the beginning of the case in the autumn of 1888, when the murderer was first thought of to be possibly a sort of top-hatted toff, a slumming Burlington Bertie, or a psychotic doctor carrying a Gladstone bag full of sharp knives, or perhaps even a crazed immigrant Jew, uh, an anarchist revolutionary bent on destroying English society. And then when you throw in dark alleyways covered in fog, from which a murderer can sort of emerge wraith-like clutching a knife, and then vanish just as easily leaving the police behind looking baffled, you've got the kind of perfect recipe for a gothic horror story. And the fact that this bears very little resemblance to the truth is kind of immaterial. But we don't have to settle for the story if we can instead allow ourselves to come to grips with truths that are much more uncomfortable, if we can give ourselves permission not to know. What we can always do is try to clear away cobwebs and at least be honest with ourselves. There will always be some people and entire portions of the past that, sadly, get left in the dark. Why should we care about Jack the Ripper? Why does this one story carry so much power? It's not like it died away with the end of the press accounts. No, we know that the stories of that brutal murder stuck around, terrifying readers and even inspiring vicious mimics. And when it hasn't been taken seriously, it's been laughed at. Here's Paul Begg. Jack the Ripper now is part of our of popular culture, known around the world. You still can, I believe, go to a burger bar in Singapore 
where you can have an Annie burger. You will see how the name has been used in everything from advertising, which virtually began as the murders were being committed. Right through, there's everything. There was a World War II bomber called Jack the Ripper. There's everything from a toilet spray to a computer game, a, a beer mat to a novel or a movie or even an opera, all about Jack the Ripper. Obviously, some of that goes beyond the bounds. And no, we're not talking about taking the violence of these crimes lightly. But there's something that made it an enduring sensation, and that's worth considering. Why does the story of the Ripper remain an open wound in the imagination of the British Empire and the history of true crime? It's a reminder that the institutions that were bringing Britain into the modern era didn't extend their rewards to everyone. In the end, there's a whole list of ideas that the Whitechapel murders upend. The police keep us safe, for instance. Following the news helps us understand our world. The charity of the middle class can meet the needs of the working poor. The courts and governments we create will bring criminals to justice. That the modern empires of trade replace the rot of an old aristocratic world with a new era of equal prosperity. All of these ideas were challenged by the stories we learn when we go back in time and study the Whitechapel murders. We find a police force acting like an occupying army. We find middle-class missionaries looking down their noses at their poor neighbors. We find the press inventing sensationalist narratives out of whole cloth and demonizing vulnerable people to sell half-penny sheets. Jack the Ripper matters because it's a story that resists blind faith in the modern world. But if that modern way of doing business actually neglects the people it impoverished, how can we defend it? If the modern methods of policing are the product of colonialism, how can we trust it? If Jack the Ripper can commit a string of atrocities on the bodies of women and escape capture, how much has modern life really improved over the past? The lesson here isn't that all of these moves toward the texture of modern life are false or frauds. No, it's that none of them can be taken for granted. A rigorous and honest press, a functional government, an equal society, all of these are things that need to be fought for. Not once, but always. It's work that's never truly done, but it's the work worth doing. If we're tempted to follow the Ripper stories into the embrace of human darkness, we can leave this history with a deeper despair about what humans are capable of. We can make an all-too-common mistake. We let fear win. We let the most vicious outliers, like the Whitechapel murderer, control the story. And when we do that, it's easy to fall into what some scholars call veneer theory, the idea that civilization is only the thin, glossy veneer over the deep, monstrous hunger that lies beneath. And sure, that's one way of telling the story of Jack the Ripper. Monsters around every corner, under every top hat and mustache. But it's a short trip toward the destination of deep cynicism about what kind of life is possible and what humans can achieve by working together. But the way I see it, the truth is the opposite. Because when we look at the history of London in the 1880s, the monstrous crimes of the so-called civilized empire aren't buried. They're right there on the surface. Diamond mines cutting into Africa. Military police trained in Ireland and then imported home to brutalize England. How about the deep disregard for the lives of poor and working women by the city developers and factory owners and bankers demolishing their homes to usher in a new era of industrial power? There's no real veneer over it, is there? 
The gloss itself is an imperial fist squeezing riches from the vulnerable people near and far. The murderer called Jack the Ripper became just another layer to that all-too-ordinary violence. And the records of disease and industrial disaster in the Victorian era far outstripped the numbers of people murdered in Whitechapel. Cholera alone was a far deadlier killer. But in 1888, the press and the police allowed themselves to be sucked into the monstrous imagination of a misogynist murderer and made their careers and sold their writing on that story. But we can't forget that underneath that violent layer, a stronger, more decent, more courageous human spirit was always burning. As Louise Raw has reminded us before, life was always dangerous for East End women. Victorian London was a place where horrifying violence against women became a global spectacle. But it's also a place where the poorest and most exploited women got together, won a landmark victory, and moved history forward. The fire lit in the subterranean communities of London's poor caught on and spread. So in looking at the legacy of the Victorian East End and the year of 1888, we ultimately must look to Mary Driscoll, Bryant and May, and the Match Women's Union. Here's Louise Raw one last time. This is a chain of events. This is hundreds and thousands of the most exploited workers who've been completely left out of any kind of consideration of unionism before, on the whole, saying, we're going to do what they did. They used strikes to force the right to form their own unions. And there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them formed across the country. As far away as Ireland, too, it's incredible how news travelled in those days. And Irish seamstresses unions wrote and said, we've heard about the match women. Please come and tell us how to do it. We want to unionise as well. So it really was striking a light. You know, it really went like a fire. It just spread and spread and spread. And it's out of that modern Labour movement, that modern trade union movement, that the Labour Party, of course, began. So, yes, there was one hell of a lot more going on in this period than one, you know, inadequate psychopath murdering women. As much as the stories of Jack the Ripper have endured to terrify and entertain generations, what the match women did has come down to us right beside it, if we're willing to look past the sensationalism to the truly significant. And like the stories of murder and mutilation, the story of the match women's courage and unity and self-respect has built not just enduring political parties, but many more victories for working people over a century and more. That's something to hold on to. It's a reminder that when the horrors of life step out of the shadows and threaten the things we hold dear, the important thing is not to give in to that fear. Instead, remember the ways that vulnerable people have stood shoulder to shoulder against it. The thing is, we have a choice about who we allow to tell the story of a place like London's East End. We could listen to the killer, or the racist press, or even the militant police memoirs. Or we could instead look to the margins, listen to the striking dock workers, take their advice, and rally to their cry. Remember. Remember the Match Girls. Today's episode was the final leg of this season's exploration of the Whitechapel murders, which brings our journey to an end. If you've enjoyed the results of our team's hard work, your written reviews and star ratings would be incredibly welcome over at Apple Podcasts. Your kind words go a long way toward helping newcomers tap that subscribe button, and it all helps the show grow. It's been an honor to be your guide over the past few weeks, and I look forward to our next tour through the darkest corners of history. But we're not quite done with Season 3. 
Starting on January 6th, we'll be releasing all four of our incredible historian interviews in full. These are powerful conversations with the leading scholars in the world of Jack the Ripper, and the insights and details they bring to the topic are perfect for those that want more. Just leave your podcast app, subscribe to the show, and those interview episodes will arrive automatically every week, as well as future news about Season 4. In fact, if you stick around after this brief sponsor break, I'll give you a taste of what's to come. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. I think the mid to late Victorian era is extremely important in terms of studying police history particularly because the Metropolitan Force had only been formed 40 years before Swanson joined in 1868. They were still sending officers for cutlass training in response to the Fenian bombing campaign which was ongoing at the time and the detective department was only 25 years old. And by contrast, when Swanson retired in 1903, the Met had just started using fingerprint evidence. So the 35 years of Swanson's career covering the late Victorian period saw an enormous development in forensics and methods of detection. We can carry that evolution through to more recent times, the introduction of the photo fit, 
chemical composition forensics and of course DNA. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane in partnership with iHeartRadio. Research and writing for this season is all the work of my right-hand man, Carl Nellis, and the brilliant Chad Lawson composed the brand new soundtrack. Learn more about our contributing historians, source material, and links to our other shows over at historyunobscured.com. And until next time, thanks for listening. Unobscured is a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.